Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Thank you so much to our guests, Emma Westwood, to Christian Connolly from Cinema Nova. Um, thank you to Annie McLaughlin today for being our wonderful producer. Thanks to everybody who rang in. Um, and we'd like to have, say, season's greetings to you all. On Screen is taking a break and we'll be back in late January. Till then, have a wonderful new year. Um, and it's goodbye for this year from Melinda O'Connor from me. Um, and thanks, everyone, for a wonderful show. I think 3CR is the voice of the people speaking back to the establishment and telling them what they think and sometimes it's something they don't want to hear. This is the Dogs Program. We are here every week uh, at 12 noon Saturdays to defend and to promote public education. And when we talk about public education, we define it. We define it very specifically as education that's public in purpose and outcome. Above all, it's publicly accessible to all children, parents, teachers, workers, you name it. Our public schools are and should be open to all in a democracy without fear or favour. They should also be publicly owned and controlled. We think that the public-private partnership is a big step backwards because they are the only ones that can be publicly accountable, they are the only ones that should be publicly funded and our governments should be held responsible for the provision of a first-rate public education for every child in this country. Well, our politicians' report card is not good. In fact, it's not just not excellent, it's not just not good, it is a failure. But uh, if you want to think that the Labor Party have got much to offer, then you can think again. We have a website at www.adogs.info and every week we try to put up a press release and here is press release 684 at www.adogs.info Tanya Plibersek takes the state school vote for granted as she protects wealthy schools' privileges. Mistake. Although Federal Minister Birmingham admits that wealthy schools are overfunded, and he did this publicly on Q&A some weeks ago, and the Grattan Institute has produced a blueprint for more equitable school funding, Tanya Plibersek thinks otherwise. There's no compelling case to cut funding to overfunded private schools and redistribute the money to, to disadvantaged schools, she says. It was absolutely the right decision for the Gillard government to promise that no school would be worse off under the Gonski funding reforms. A commitment that the Gonski Review panellist even, Ken Boston, says blew out the cost of the reforms and entrenched inequalities between schools. On the John Menadue blog, Chris Bonner says that the ALP has a long memory, even if it can be selective when it comes to school funding. Along with others, the ALP believes, I don't know whether it's sincere or not, that it lost the 2004 election because Mark Latham proposed to take funding from a list of high-fee schools. Remember? Mm. 
But in a more recent times, that belief has been challenged. All the dogs challenged it at the time. Because if anything, Latham's hit list assisted him in the polls. What, what brought him down was in fact the Tasmanian loggers. But don't worry about all that. We're in the post-truth society and rusted on beliefs still reign supreme in the Labor Party. Dogs suggest, however, that the ALP exercise their memory a little further back, back to the days before 1970, when the ALP had some basic principles on state aid to private schools, which was no state aid to private schools. These were the days when Bill Hartley was the Secretary of the Labor Party in Victoria and Gough Whitlam, desperate for the Catholic vote, took over the Victorian branch and opened the floodgates of state aid to all and sundry, including the wealthy, in 1974. His Minister for Education in those days was Kim Beasley Senior. Now, the original needs policy, as the dogs have pointed out over the years, was always a political sham. And as Tanya has finally admitted it, it still is. Even the coalition is starting to realise that the Catholic vote, and even any religious vote, has long since dissipated. Its representatives are in their own vocal but unpopular right-wing backbench or wandering off further right. Uh, You've got some sticking still with Mr Abbott and you've got some wandering off after Cory Bernardi. Birmingham, looking at his political future, however, must be well aware of just how brittle in the current uncertain economic climate the private school vote really is. Meanwhile... The state school vote, which incidentally still represents the vast majority of Australian parents in both city and country, is still intact, but it's very restless. State school supporters are happy to ditch both parties. This voting group was efficiently organised by the unions and parents organisation in the last election. Shorten and Di Natale should appreciate how far it got them to control of the Senate and one member short in the House of Representatives. Tanya Plibersek is diving where she should tiptoe into very troubled waters that have become very murky indeed. But Chris Bonner has some interesting thoughts on the subject and I'll refer to his thoughts in a moment, but he too has not yet reached the point of understanding that the only way forward in the school funding debate is to advocate genuine independent schools and withdrawal of state funding from all private educational institutions, and that includes TAFE and preschool. Education from birth to death is a state responsibility And any outsourcing leads to inefficiency, lack of accountability and corruption. Now, this is a long-held belief in Australia. It is the belief that came out of the French Revolution and the Reform Acts of Great Britain. It is the belief that was born out of the ideas of the Enlightenment. And it is a very proud belief system and it is our inheritance. Nevertheless, let's hear what Bonner has to say because people are still thinking that somehow they can solve this problem by uh, fiddling with a needs policy, which always transfers itself into a greeds policy. Now, he claims that the ghost of Latham's hit list has rattled around the ALP ever since 2004, spooking anyone who suggests that, even with escalating private school funding, it's a no-no to take dollars from any school. That was the way they felt in 1973 when they wanted to keep together what was really a very unholy Protestant-Catholic alliance. 
Juliet Gillard went as far as promising that far from losing a dollar, all schools would gain, and that has certainly happened, and the no-losers have ended up being amongst the biggest winners. That was predictable. But we've also seen mounting unease about some schools receiving funding increases well ahead of more needy schools. Ahead of their schools' resourcing standard, and in ways that almost defy fiscal gravity. One would think that even the most cautious would agree that something must change. And one of the most cautious has indeed admitted that something should change, and that's Mr Birmingham. In the political sphere, this concession came from an unexpected quarter when the Coalition Federal Education Minister agreed that some schools might be overfunded. Alas, the penny didn't drop in the ALP. Instead of the ghostly chains just rattled again and it seems that everyone has ducked for cover, led by no less a person than the otherwise highly regarded Deputy and Education Shadow Minister Tanya Plibersek. So what is the ALP game plan here? Well, Chris Bonner, I'm not sure the ALP's actually got a game plan here. Uh, Surely few in the caucus would be comfortable with serial revelations about highly funded schools. They shouldn't be worried about offending the Catholic school lobby. There aren't many Catholic schools in the high-fee school bracket. Well, actually, Chris isn't quite right there. Indeed, it's possible Catholic school peak groups and the lower-fee independent schools might quietly cheer any move to rein in the level of public funding of the wealthy schools. At one level, Tanya Plibersek is right in claiming that it seems like a, div- like a diversion. The amount of public funding going to these schools isn't as much. Figures are between $3,000 and $6,000 per student are common. But even this level of public funding totals anything between $1 and $2 billion each year. Hardly, in Plibersek's words, a drop in the bucket. Much more comes to parents and it is a total big, big, big total spend. But their students do about the same as similar children in public schools. So the parents are wasting their money. Should governments contribute to such an inefficient spend-up on advantaged students when the benefits of investing in the strugglers are well known? Tanya Plibersek claims that people find it a compelling thing to talk about, but I think it misses the point entirely. We know the ALP is committed to the final two years of funding, but they seem to have missed many points about school funding, especially the need to establish Gonski School's resourcing body, a proposal which was being strongly supported in the Grattan Institute's just-released breakthrough strategy. Well, the dogs don't necessarily agree with the setting up of another school's commission because the private schools will just uh, stack it, as they did the Schools Commission in the end. Such a body, however, uh, some people thinks would help iron out the mounting absurdities in the way schools are funded. Well, don't bet on that one, because the Schools Commission just made it worse until uh, there were dissenting reports and it was got rid of because it wasn't doing its job of hosing down dissent. But uh, Chris Bonner goes on to say, is another missing point the need to guard against large numbers of private schools being funded by governments ahead of similar government schools? It's too late. It's already started to happen. Even two-year-old figures show this. So perhaps we've reached the point where we should acknowledge that this is happening and maybe slow down funding increases to schools where it doesn't make any sense. In other words, in Australia, private schools get more taxpayer funding than government schools do. It's not just the total funding with uh, parents and uh, parents' uh, contributions and government funding, the actual government funding given to quite a few Catholic schools exceeds that given to the local government school. Extraordinary, isn't it? Well, does the ALP have a plan to ensure that all schools which are similarly funded by governments have similar obligations to the taxpayer that provides the money? 
It would be nice to avoid, in Tanya Plibersek's words, being sucked into school against school, system against system, state against state. Again, that's just too late. When the Gonski Review reported we had a chance, but a weird combination of action and inaction by politicians has worsened the sorry state of affairs. The differences between the states in how they support schools are substantial and the private-public school framework just doesn't work. And anyone can see the differences between schools, gaps that are undermining efforts to improve student achievement. And now, of course, we've got the PISA results. Even in this post-fact world, it would be refreshing, Bonner says, to see the government and opposition respond to overwhelming evidence and help create something better. Well, the only way that's going to happen is if they actually repeat the lessons learned by Finland and Shanghai and others that are doing well in the international stakes and even go back and learn from our own history. The rot started in 1973 when the state aid floodgates were opened and now we are in a right royal mess. So now let's have a little bit of music and then we'll cross over and have a chat with Robert and see what he thinks about all of this uh, PISA and a funding problem.
Well, the PISA results are in, and Australian high school students are two years behind the world's best performing systems, uh, most particularly when it comes to science, reading and maths. We had the uh, primary school results uh, a couple of weeks ago, and now the PISA results have come in. And uh, this is uh, what the uh, Fairfax media uh, gentleman had to say about it. How do you compare the performance of Australian school students with the rest of the world? Well, every three years, the OECD simultaneously tests more than half a million students across 72 different countries and economic zones. Students are tested on their maths, reading and science ability through questions on subjects as varied as bird migration, heat stroke and comprehension. The results are then sliced and diced, divided sector by sector, state by state, boys and girls and students from richer and poorer backgrounds. So how does Australia perform? The results aren't good. Our students have been declining in maths, science and reading for the past 16 years. And it's not just that countries like Estonia, Slovenia and New Zealand have been getting better. It's that we're actually getting worse. To put it simply, the majority of Australian students are now reading, doing maths and studying science at a lower level than they were in the year 2000. The news is even worse for Indigenous and less well-off students, where the gap in mathematical literacy has grown to as much as three years of schooling. All of this matters beyond just the classroom. It has significant political and economic implications. Some politicians, like Education Minister Simon Birmingham, say the tests show more funding through the needs-based Gonski model doesn't equal better results. Others, like New South Wales Education Minister Adrian Piccoli, argue it's still too early to tell if the extra money already invested is making a difference. The 2015 tests were taken after the first two years of Gonski funding were implemented. There's little doubt the results are damning. But it's also fair to say that many countries at the top of the table, like Finland and Singapore, implemented reforms a decade ago, like only recruiting the top students into teaching. They're reforms that Australia is only now getting around to. No matter where you stand on the funding debate, these results should be a concern to politicians, parents and teachers. We all know that Australia's future competitiveness relies on the skills of its future workforce. With the right reforms, our students should be able to catch up by the time they next have to see the tests in 2018. Well, uh, that's a, a rather worrying scenario, but let's see what our uh, researcher, our roving researcher, has to say about this. We'll now have a little chat to Robert. Well, hello, Robert. What's on your mind this week educationally? Oh, look, it's Robert, it's Robert here, uh, international and, and, and um, foreign correspondent for the DOGS program. Anyway, as you can probably hear, listeners, I'm not in the studio again this week, but I've been doing some research on, um, again, our poor, piteous education minister, Mr Birmingham. The one that had his um, tenants trash the joint. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Yes, yes, well, he yes. thinks they did. He thinks they did. Anybody he can blame at the moment? Oh. Well, blame, blame, blame. It's not mine. That, that, that actually seems to be the... Um, the way the government's working at the moment, it seems quite dysfunctional. Um, that's in general, but certainly in educational terms, that's true as well. Well, Tanya Plibersek has no, no shrinking violet when it comes to looking after the wealthy schools either. No, um, you know, they're, they're as bad as each other, truth yeah, to tell. Yeah. But um, chickens are coming home to roost. I mean, we're speaking, we spoke last week about the PIMS result, mm. which is the math and science results for two children in primary school. Um, now we've got PISA. Announced... Yeah, and now we've got PISA. It's really quite ridiculous. Um, basically, our kids in primary school are falling behind um, the OECD at a, at a rapid rate, which is quite extraordinary. Um, and now it turns out that our kids, um, as part of the PISA international comparison results are concerned, are also falling behind. Now, falling behind is one thing. You know, you can talk about falling behind a little bit or a, little, or a lot. Peace has been going now for oh, about 17 years. Um, so we've got a little bit of what they call longitudinal data, which means we, we know what's happening now. We know what happened before. We know what happened before that. We know what happened before that. So we can start to see patterns. Yeah. And the patterns are very strong in Australia. 
I mean, other countries have other patterns. So just, just, just as an aside, for instance, China, or Shanghai China, um, which is a small part of China, topped the world rankings four years ago um, in mathematics and science. Um, uh, this time around, um, obviously, there wasn't quite as much effort put into um, how the PISA results were assessed in Shanghai, China, and China's come back well into the ruck. In fact, they're about the same as Australia. Um, but that's not our problem. Our problem is what's going on here in Australia. And what's going on here in Australia is very simple when it comes to educating children um, at the Year 9 level across Australia in mathematics and science. And what's happened is that we've fallen out of the top group. But we've been going down for years, haven't we? It's been a downward We've been going spot. down for years, but we've been hanging on to what they call statistical significance. Mm. So between the best education systems in the world, which are from Singapore um, and Finland, <clears throat> um, in those education systems, we, are not, we haven't been previously statistically significantly different from them. So, you know, numbers lie, True. and um, there's a way of measuring the way numbers lie, and that is to, and that is to say, well, within the bounds of probability, um, the way they educate the kids in the top sort of band is sort of statistically significant, not dissimilar from the way that we do it. But we can't say that anymore. We've now fallen into the middle tier. It used to be the top tier, the middle tier, and the bottom tier. Um, we're now in the middle. We're now in the ruck. We've fallen behind. Um, other countries have improved and we have not. In fact, we've gone backwards, not just relatively, but in absolute terms as well. Is this a surprise, given the way they've been pouring funds into the private sector, bolstering up what is, in fact, just um, not, not an efficient way of doing things at all and uh, withdrawing funds from the government sector? How, what else did they um, expect? Oh, absolutely. I mean, it's, I mean, you can say, OK... We at the dogs here, we're a bunch of loons and we go around saying all sorts of things. Um, we've been saying for years that if you don't make funding for education equitable, the whole system is going to suffer. Because functionally, within a country, education is a zero-sum game. Um, if you benefit students from wealthy parents, um, then you, by definition, if you give them extra money, you're taking it away from somewhere and you're taking it away from the students who do not have economic benefits basically because of an accident of their birth. It's a zero-sum game. Now, at a certain point, if you start giving extra money to a child that doesn't need it, that's actually just wasted. So what happens is that money is not getting spent where it needs to get spent, and so the overall average, the overall average of all students in Australia goes down because you're pouring money into an already full glass of those wealthy students you're pouring money into a situation that no longer requires money to be poured into it. And so, therefore, that money cannot be poured into a glass of a child that really wants, um, that really needs the education, that really needs a drink of knowledge. Well, the overflow, is not, the overflow is not even trickling down, is it? Well, that's the thing. The whole principle of, of this market-based economy is if you do really good, then you just get more money, or if you start from a position of... Um, you start from a position of strength and that position of strength is based upon the fact that you can exclude everyone you don't like. Um, once you start from that position, um, then if you give them any more money, it does not trickle down to the poor school down the road. That's not the way education works. It trickles down all right. It trickles down into a new swimming pool. It trickles down into an equestrian centre. It trickles down into a new sports hall. It trickles down into subsidising students going on six weeks trips to China. It trickles down into things which have limited educational benefit for students who are already receiving a gold-class education. It trickles down... Well, actually, the one thing it doesn't trickle down into is lowering school fees, just as John Howard said it would in year 2000. The one thing this extra money does not trickle down into is lower school fees. I think it was because Mr... The Kent. private education sector is structurally set up to, I would say, corruptly, and many others would say improperly, take money off the top. Um, even though we have things like my school, which show what the government funding is and what the private funding is, my school does not show 
how much of this money is being put aside to earn interest to create a benefit for those already advantaged students. All of this, of course, ignores the fact that the children who do not have an economic advantage are just languishing further and further behind. It's between three and five years at, the, at a year nine level. So, Robert... The difference in educational outcome for a year nine student... The difference in educational outcomes for a year nine student is between three and five years in Australia today. That's not a prediction. That's just a statement of fact. So, Robert, what do you make of Tanya Plibersek, who is the Alternative Minister for Education in the Labor Party, saying that there's no compelling case to cut funding to overfunded private schools and redistribute the money to disadvantaged schools? And um, that... She's either stupid or corrupt. Well, that's... Um, I mean, it's just functionally, she's either stupid or beholden to particular sectarian interests because, as we know, the private school system is run functionally, practically and financially by religious institutions mm. um, and some others, but mainly religious institutions. Um, she is kowtowing to um, various lobbying groups and interests not for the benefit of all Australians. Well, she comes out of the Catholic either, either that or she's just stupid. Yeah. And, I, I, and, and from what I've seen of Tanya Clevisic, I don't actually think she's all that stupid. Oh, no, no. So, no. I, so, so, so I would go with the other option. Well, she she herself says that she's a nerd and uh, she was educated in the Catholic system. So one just really wonders. I, I thought that she had been very good in the inner city of Sydney uh, fighting for the state schools and for the Indigenous people there. But um, this is a very big disappointment, I think, to people who thought oh, that... Oh, look, someone just needs to come from outside. Spend about five minutes looking at the way we run things and say, oh, OK, right. So you've got a... You have the most marketised, most privatised education system in OECD here in Australia. This is leading to growing inequity year on year on year on year, and your results are falling behind year on year on year on year. So you have to solve the equity problem. How do you solve the equity problem? Well, no, it's not how Tanya put the fix. It's really simple. You do not give any government funding of any sort, not a single cent, not a single dollar, not a single five-cent piece, to any school that does not have an open, completely open, um, enrolment policy. An enrolment policy says, no, you can't come in um, because you're too poor, you can't come in because you're too black, you can't come in because you're too this religion or that religion, um, then you don't believe this or you do believe that, or you can't come in because your soul's not well enough developed if it's a spinal or you can't come in if, um, um, if you don't believe this or that. Um, if you're a school that does that, you shouldn't get a five-cent piece out of the government. That's how you improve equity. And everyone jumps up and down about, oh, but wouldn't it be terrible because, because then all the poor state schools would get all the money and, um, and, and that would be bad because they couldn't cope. And I would just go, imagine the political will. Imagine the overwhelming political will to make the state school system the best school system if what I say was true. Well, that has happened in our history when we had uh, Sir Henry Parks and other people who really believed because they had had to struggle so much themselves to get any kind of education, they really believed that all children had the right to a public education and that the state had to take responsibility for it. It has happened yeah. and it can and it should happen again and the sooner yeah. the better. And the sooner the oh, plebiscites and others uh, learn their lesson that they won't get state school votes until they learn that lesson again, uh, the better. The thing that disgusts me, it actually disgusts me, mm. um, is that when this discussion is dealt with in political spheres, you've got the plebiscites and the, and the Birminghams jumping up and down. The solutions they propose are just mindless. <laughs> They're not even band-aids. The not even a standard. I mean, what's, what's Birmingham saying now? Oh, we need to import science and math teachers. From where? That's going to solve that. From That's where? Solve that. Where are we going to get them from? Yeah. Yeah, and how, and how are we going to make sure they're properly qualified and, and, and whatever. I mean, it's just ridiculous. Oh, he'll outsource that. And, and then he says, oh, that, uh, that system's it. not working because people aren't competing hard enough with each other, so we need to privatise it some more. I mean, look at the taste system. It's ridiculous. I mean, he knows that's just all absolute BS. They've got no idea. At a certain point, it's going to get so bad, and it's going to take another four years until another piece of results 
results come out so that we're not just in the ruck, we're down the bottom of the ruck and, and falling off. Um, but the Birmingham will go, hang on, one of our greatest trade, one of our greatest assets in terms of international balance of trade is our education system. And we're way down in the middle of the ruck. So do you know what? We're going to lose money unless we do something about this. Mm. <laughs> you know? And then someone will go, oh, I mean, the only real solution to that problem is just, oh, no, 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 no. He will have to say, seriously, our education system, if you've got enough money, is absolutely brilliant. What's going on is the only reason we're down in the stats is that we're not educating our poor people. So don't worry about that, all these foreign investment people who want to send their children to Australia to give us lots of money. It's okay if you've got money. But he would have to admit that there is a two-tier system Mm. to keep that balance of trade. Now, we know there's a two-tier system, but for a federal education minister to be forced to admit it because the GDP is not looking good would be, to my mind, and I very rarely use this word, antithetical to the Australian way of life. It means we really have thrown the fair go out. Oh, back to back to the Middle Ages and the robber barons, Robert. Well, yeah. I, sorry to interrupt. It's just Dale with my naive two cents here, but I don't know. It just strikes me that you know the whole reason for there to be a governing apparatus is to make sure that every child born um, has the tools with which to navigate the society that apparatus is enforcing on the child. And that, those tools are, are education. It's, it's, yep. it's, it's a fundamental human right, like, like yeah. oxygen, shelter, you know. Yep. Yet, yet, you know, it, so, so it's counterintuitive to think that, um, you know, an apparatus washes its hands of half of its population, you know, and, and yeah. still expects to, um, well, you know, compete, I guess. So that, I, I don't understand competition in the first place. Why do we have to be better than anyone else, you know? But it's more a matter of, you know, just looking. It, 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 I know it's a really naive way to look at things, but they're washing their hands of everything. Like, they're no longer responsible yeah. for education for children, not responsible for health, not responsible for, oh. you know, oh, no. anything. So why do they exist? No. Purely to feather their own nest. Um, That's why I'm talking about the Middle Ages. It's it's feudal, it is. Yeah, I know, it's definitely feudal. I mean, you know, as much as I dislike what's going on in the world, people are reacting to this and they're saying, well, what what, what we need is a strong man to come and beat up on all these corrupt people. I mean, you know, that that, that is functionally what a lot of people are saying because they're so angry. Because what you're saying is true. What you're saying, by the way, Dale, is not out out there. What you're saying is mainstream. If well, you it walked seems into radical. an RSL today, a bunch of you know, radical right-wing fascists, and said that, they go, yeah, you're right. It just doesn't... You know what I mean? I mean, you could say that anywhere in Australia and everyone would sit there and nod. That's not entirely what true. what you're saying ha- has a truth. Because a if I was sitting at a table with a bunch of old-school ties, I would not yeah. be agreed with. Oh, but they're um, a minority. Yeah, but the they majority, the majority, people no, have forgotten the actually, majority Dale, have come through the actually, state system. Dale, actually, Dale, I agree with you. I really do. Because a lot of the politicians romance about what the state school system is, because a few of them, not many, mm. went through it. And there's this basic idea that back in the 70s and 80s, the state school system was kind of okay. If you're a good kid, you could get through and you can make something with yourself. And they romance about that. Mm. And what they don't realise is that disappeared somewhere between 2000 and today. Mm. That are, Functionally, that process has disappeared. Along with the manufacturing and other jobs. It's that segregation, yeah. isn't it, of children, yeah. you know, the more uh, and more we segregate them. So, even in the state school system itself, if you go to a state school in Port Melbourne and you go to a state, a state school in Sunshine, they are actually just completely different school systems. Mm. Even though they're supposed to be the same, they're not. Mm. It's not well, decentralised, you see. It's counterintuitive. It just doesn't make any sense. You know? It doesn't make any sense at all. Oh, it makes sense. Mm-hmm. But it if, makes sense if you talk about if you're a my beneficiary. Child. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. If you talk child. about I and me, my not child. we and yeah. us. Yeah, absolutely. If you say well, that's I couldn't, I couldn't possibly send my child to that school. Mm. If I did that, that would be cruel. I wouldn't love them. I can't do that. The local state school is not good enough for the special needs of my child. Yeah. In that situation, it all makes perfect sense. No, yeah, you know, and, and to that, into that parent, I'd say, join the bloody PNC. 
you know, get involved uh, in right. your own, in your in your community and your education. Get involved. No, I can't do that because we need two dogs to survive because everything's really tough. No, no, I only, mean, only because we all aspire to have two cars and aspire to have a big yard and you know, yeah. it's just the whole lie is is all going to crumble under the weight of its own contradictions. All right, I'll shut up now. No, no, that's no, actually... Please, no, 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 please don't, because you're absolutely spot on. I'm, I'm, I'm playing devil's advocate. I agree with everything you say, pal. I'm, I'm just saying that the, the way people get morally justified what's going on is... um Oh, I, I, I always go back to the, world, the words of J.K. Galbraith. He says, it, it, it's, I think he said something like, it, it's the eternal preoccupation of the aspirational middle class. Yeah find a moral justification mm. for selfishness. Mm. That's absolutely right. The, the, other, quest. the mm. other thing that can be said about all of this is that the community is the basis of a democracy where we're all pulling together and we're thinking of the common good and the family, the, uh, the, um, the decision that my child is better than all of the other children and must be given special consideration... Mm. That actually is the basis of an aristocracy, not a democracy. And so uh, you have these aspirational aristocrats, unfortunately, in Australia. The only thing that has saved us from the British aristocratic system is that we've had so many booms and busts and they're getting uh, uh, closer and closer together, the booms and busts, so that... um, there isn't that much inherited money around. But mm. uh, we do have a lot of aspirational mm. um, aristocrats in Australia and we've got billionaires who think that they are special and not only are they special, they should have power. Mm. And we can think of the the, Can- oh, the Hancock dynasty and Palmer's trying to start a dynasty. Oh, yes. Yes. Gina Reinhardt is suing the government of Victoria yes. for $2.4 billion yes. because she couldn't track... Victoria. Mm, yes. That is those, aris- those aristocracy um, writ-, writ large. Yes. Sorry. Anyway, Jane, I must go and do some more research. Let you go. Okay. Thanks so much, no, for, so much for talking to us today, Rob. Lovely to hear your voice. No worries, and I'll speak to you again next week. Bye. Bye. Stay Bye, angry. <laughs> Hi, I'm Sam. I'm Wamba Wamba. Shout out to all Gunditjmara people. Hi, my name's Chloe from Bundjalung. Hey, Rob, it's Candice. I'm Kernan Nundidi. You are invited to 3CR Community Radio's Beyond the Bars 2016 CD launch. From 6.30pm on Thursday the 15th of December, join us at Gertrude Contemporary for a panel discussion on Aboriginal incarceration, prison radio and the launch of our 13th Beyond the Bars CD with MC Kutcher Edwards. For more information, contact 3CR on 9419 8377 or go to our website at 3cr.org.au. All the Yorta fellas up there, take care and have a good night off. This is Candy from DPFC Treaty, where you don't want to be all your sisters, aunties and cousins. Well, here we are again, and I thought that in our final segment we might go over to America to see what's on uh, Diane Ravitch's uh, blog. And there's a very interesting article here about what's actually happening uh, in the institutions. We found here in Victoria when Kennett came to power in 1992-3, I think it was, that immediately people felt that they could bully other people from the top. And the um, election of Donald Trump led to quite a few hate crimes in America. And uh, this is what happened in one institution down in New Mexico. Catherine Crawford Garrett and Rebecca Sanchez are professors in the School of Education at the University of Mexico and they wrote the following commentary. Like so many universities across the country, the University of New Mexico, a minority-serving institution, has experienced a sharp increase in hate-related incidents since the presidential election. 
These events, which have included swastikas being sprayed, painted around campus, and the attempts to remove a Muslim woman's hijab in the library, have triggered responses from departments, colleges and senior level university officials, such as the President and Provost. The chair of the American Studies Department, for example, immediately sent a note to students inviting them to an informal gathering to process emotions and share thoughts and insights. A colleague who teaches Spanish reported that faculty and administrators in her department were collecting, collectively planning a teach-in. A professor in Chicano Studies initiated a petition to have the campus designated as a sanctuary for undocumented students. They would be uh, students that didn't have their visas or might be deported, I assume. The provost shared insights about the role of the university in comforting those who are hurt, scared and disenfranchised. As professors in the College of Education, we wondered how our college might respond, aware that our students were not only navigating a treacherous environment on campus, but simultaneously working as pre-service teachers in public schools where they were struggling to debrief the election address issues of bullying and aggression, and ease the anxieties and fears expressed by their students from immigrant background. But as the days passed... We became increasingly confounded by the silence from our college and department and tried sending emails inquiring whether a message would be sent to education students and faculty within our community. Specifically, we asserted that, as the College of Education at a minority-serving institution, we have a moral obligation to acknowledge the events of the past several days, reaffirm our commitment to diversity and offer our students an opportunity to discuss and process what has happened. We understand that addressing these issues is difficult and that members of our college community hold diverse political views and experience the aftermath of the election from a variety of different positions and perspectives. Yet we argue that we have an ethical responsibility to foster dialogue, generate discussion and encourage solidarity. As a result of these convictions, we also attempted to start a conversation among our colleagues directly by sending an email to our faculty, NITSERV. Uh, in our message, we posed critical questions about the purposes of teacher education, including the following. And these are very interesting. What does it mean to be critical participants in a democracy? In what ways do we rigorously and consistently engage diversity in our courses, programs and departments? What does it mean to prepare teachers to teach in these times? How do we centre human relationships in our work, both with each other and with our students? And how do we stay connected to our vision and values as we negotiate pressures from state and federal sources? What an interesting lot of questions. Mm. And this, this is, these are very interesting questions for teacher trainees and teachers in Australian schools at the moment because they're being expected to produce results, results, results. And yet what we really expect them to do is to produce thinking citizens to keep our democracy alive and well. While many of our colleagues, uh, this person continues uh, from the University of New Mexico, while many of our colleagues in the teacher faculty expressed interest in discussing these questions, we later discovered that certain responses to our email were not distributed by departmental leaders, including one particularly powerful response authored by a black female professor. <laughs> Lastly, we sought to reach out to the elementary education students enrolled in our program by compiling a comp comprehensive list of resources to support them as they attempted to confront the numerous issues surfacing in their classrooms in the wake of the election. These resources included links to news accounts of school and university-based violence occurring across the country, 
guidelines for discussing the election from organisations like Teaching Tolerance and Facing History and ourselves, a list of our college's core values which include tenets like social justice, diversity and advocacy, excerpts from US court cases that affirm children's rights to an equal education, and suggestions on how to move forward collectively in an era marked by deeply divisive rhetoric. Unfortunately, we were denied access to the elementary education lit serve of the university, though we are both faculty members in the program, and we were told that the resources we sought to provide did not constitute official business. While we both, these two uh, faculty members, found creative ways around these obstacles by contacting our individual students directly, a fraction of those we could have reached through the LitServe, and working to organise a community forum, which will be held on Inauguration Day, we remain alarmed by the silence and resistance we encountered in our college. What is most damning about this silence is, it, is that it subverts the very core of our work as teacher educators. What could be more essential to our profession than helping pre-service teachers conduct meaningful, urgent discussions with students about what it means to live and participate in a democracy? When we finally saw our students in class nearly a week after the election, they had stories to share regarding personal experiences on campus and the conditions they encountered in their elementary and high school classrooms. One high school teacher was told by her principal that discussing the election with students was unprofessional and would be marked on as such on a forthcoming evaluation. An elementary school teacher shared a note written by student who said he wouldn't be participating in class that day because he was so worried about his family's impending deportation. Another teacher shared that a group of fifth graders were bullying younger students at the school with the justification that if the president can talk like this, so can we. A Middle Eastern graduate student conveyed fears that if he chose to leave the US to visit his family over the summer, he may not be allowed back to complete his degree. These concerns serve as tangible and concrete reminders of the necessity of creating the space to have difficult conversations in our classrooms. Our nation is clearly at a crossroads and education will undoubtedly play an essential role in how we collectively move forward. If our goal as educators is to develop critically conscious citizens capable of engaging productively within our democracy, we must live these values as well. We must talk fearlessly with one another, engage in dialogue even when it feels uncertain and uncomfortable and be willing to affirm one another's humanity. As Holocaust survivor and scholar Ellie Weissel noted, to remain silent and indifferent is the greatest sin of all. And uh, the dogs agree with all of that. We have to remain true to the ideals of democracy and sometimes that means being outspoken and taking the results. Ray Nielsen always used to point to what happened in Paris after the German invasion. In order to save their buildings and their culture as they saw it, the Vichy government and large numbers of people who had been the intellectual leaders of France buckled under. And that included Sartre and other people, very, very prominent intellectuals, because they thought that it was for what they considered the greater good and uh, the the long-term future, that they just agree and be silent. There is a time when silence and collaboration are exactly the worst things for true freedom. So the dogs have been 
trying to tell their story here uh, since 1987 and earlier than that, the 1960s, and we're not going to shy away from the truth of what is going on in education in Australia. But that's us for this week. Uh, and we hope that you will keep listening to 3CR and be back with us at 12 midday next Saturday. Bye for now. I dreamed I saw Joe here last night Alive as you and me Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead I never died, says he I never died, says he In Salt Lake City, Joe, says I Him standing by my bed They framed you on a murder charge Says Joe, but I ain't dead Says Joe, but I ain't dead The copper bosses killed you, Joe They shot you, Joe, says I Takes more than guns to kill a man Says Joe, I didn't die Says Joe, I didn't die And standing there as big as life And smiling with his eyes Says Joe, what they can never kill Went on to organize Went on to organize From San Diego up to Maine In every mine and mill Where workers strike and organize It's there you find your hill It's there you find your hill I dreamed I saw Joe here last night Alive as you and me Says I, but Joe, you're ten years dead I never died, says he Public Interest Before Corporate Interests Action Group. Why is it so difficult to find a home, to pay rent, pay mortgage? Why is it so difficult to afford childcare, get a decent education for the kids, have so much trouble gaining access to public hospitals and healthcare, finding a job, let alone a secure, well-paid one, to be able to pay for gas and power bills or even put food on the table? Remember when we could do all of this on one wage and an eight-hour day? We invented and built discovered and taught. We made ships, planes and cars. We were among the world first in social, health, scientific and arts initiatives. Alas, no more.